This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum has been loved by generations of visitors, commemorating the past and committed to educating and inspiring people to foster appreciation for the importance of flight. It maintains the world's largest and most significant collection of aviation and space artifacts, encompassing all aspects of human flight. It operates two landmark facilities that together welcome more than 8 million visitors a year making it the most visited museum in the country. The museum faces many challenges, however. Given its four decades of life and enduring heavy visitor traffic, it comes as a little surprise that the museum is now in need of major innovations to revitalize its facilities and refresh its exhibitions to better engage and educate the public. How is the National Air and Space Museum being transformed? What is being done to enhance the visitor's museum experience? and what is being done to enhance the overall operational effectiveness of the National Air and Space Museum. We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to join you. Great. So, you know, could you provide us with an overview of the mission and history of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum? How has its mission evolved to date? The museum opened in uh, 4th of July, uh, 1976, as we say, a birthday to the nation, a gift to the nation. So it's been over 40 years. And the the collection, though, that uh, much of which is in the museum even today, uh, started long before. Um, Obviously, we've got the Wright Flyer, the original Wright Flyer. But there were some very influential folks uh, early on, Paul Garber and others, Hap Arnold, who saw the... um, took the opportunity and saw the need and in case for actually collecting uh, what we see of, we describe of as artifacts, but think of aviation, aircraft, and, and obviously now spacecraft. So the collecting process uh, started decades ago, but uh, it became very apparent that the collection had matured and grown to the point where a museum dedicated to the purpose of uh, showcasing uh, the, the most prominent aviation and aerospace artifacts of the nation uh, was needed. And so they built the Air and Space Museum very much right there on the mall, uh, centerpiece. And uh, it has been incredibly successful over the years, um, outpacing virtually every other museum in the nation and certainly uh, in some cases the world in terms of the number of visitors. So it's uh, certainly America's most visited museum. And... um, 
we can get into it further, but sure. the place has kind of uh, gotten worn out over the years, and so that's a, the subject we'll get to in a moment. But the mission of the museum, as we see it, is is uh, really can be somewhat simplified to commemorate, educate, and inspire. And so we want to commemorate the past with what is the national collection of the most iconic artifacts. I mean, we we have the privilege to care for and and uh, uh, tell the stories about the most impactful aviation and aerospace artifacts in the world and certainly in the national collection. And then um, to educate, I mean, it's it's much more than just showcasing an artifact. I mean, the artifact on display sits silent without a story behind it. So our curators and scholars and docents and others work very hard to bring life and story to these artifacts in a way that can then educate um, our audiences, which are multiple. Um, we, we are focusing, like many, many areas now, many organizations on middle school and STEM programs. So the educational um, role of the museum has, I think, evolved and would suggest it's become even more relevant and more prominent now than perhaps uh, it was in the past. And then it's all about inspiring, inspiring um, folks in a way, and we think often in terms of, of school kids, but it's, it's, it's really a much broader audience, but inspire folks to um, use the examples of the collection and the stories behind them to think in terms of how can influence the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, again, we may speak to it in a moment, but we're entering the year of Apollo, celebrating the, the 50th anniversary of Apollo, and much of those artifacts are in the National Collection. And we talk about a moonshot and how can we take that story, for instance, and other uh, artifacts uh, in the museum to really inspire similar future acts of incredible um, uh, feats as, as was the, the lunar landing. Um, and so we, we've, as I say, feel very privileged to, to be part of this, uh, not just caring for the collection, but bringing the collection to life. And, and I like to look behind the curtain, so to speak, because you, there's a lot of things that have to make, that have to be in place to make this these these exhibits work and and the work you do. So, how is the museum organized? And you know, what's the size and scale of operation? And what type of experts do you have on staff? We have uh, a new director with us, Dr. Ellen Stofan, who uh, comes to us from. Uh, NASA. Uh, she was chief scientist at NASA and has a rich experience uh, in planetary science and geology. And she's been with us oh, six months, eight months or so. So it's wonderful to have uh, her leadership and her uh, priorities on board. But uh, she, uh, with the assistance of others, myself included, uh, manage a, a, a staff of about 250 people. And then we have a very large cadre of uh, volunteer docents and volunteer visitor services. And and recognizing it's really not just the museum on the mall. Yes. We think of uh, one museum, two locations. We have the Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center located uh, out near Dallas Airport, which is a magnificent facility in its own right. But then we also have a third facility that is not open to the public per se, but that's the Garber facility in Suitland, Maryland, where much of the collection uh, that is, of course, not on display is is in keeping and um, going through various levels of conservation and care and ultimately will be moved to our facility at Udvarhazi. So Ellen and the team preside over really three facilities, uh, 
uh, but two very public-facing museums, as you think of, and and um, and you know uh, the, the museums host over well in excess of eight million people a year. Wow. So let's transition to your specific role. Um, would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as um, the deputy director of the National Air and Space Museum? As the deputy, it's it's I see it very much as my duty to uh, assist the director in fulfilling the goals and missions of the museum. And so, to your prior question, organizationally we're structured with associate directors, mm-hmm. uh, an associate director for education, an associate director for external affairs, an associate director for exhibits, an associate director for logistics, and, um, and then a uh, associate director for advancement and a chief curator. And those folks, with the exception of the advancement director, I'm accountable for, they and their staffs. And then the direct reports to Ellen are myself as her deputy and then uh, Laura Gleason, who serves as our uh, director of advancement. So in the deputy role, it's very much um, incumbent on me to help position the organization to uh, achieve its goals in the most optimal, efficient uh, way, and to uh, make sure that the director's goals and visions are being um, embraced and um, achieved by the staff at large. And so um, I assist with some of the fundraising activity, but not as much. More of that is in the, with uh, uh, Director of Advancement and, and Dr. Stofan. But uh, I think if you were to sort of see it as a equated to a business enterprise, I'm probably more akin to the chief operating officer. COO, yeah. Correct. Yeah, you, you know, and, and they always face some of the challenges that folks don't realize. So, like, what are your top management challenges? Um, well, you know, uh, people are often the challenge but also the, the strength. And it's always important to ensure that we're um, addressing – our staff's needs, uh, that the staff is aligned in their efforts and activities, um, and that uh, uh, particularly as we get into a very, very challenging time for the museum with regard to the renovation or the revitalization transformation of the museum building downtown, there's a lot of change, and with the change can come disruption. so a lot of my effort, I would say, is helping prepare the organization for those changes and to sort of stay ahead of them in a way that is more predictive and less reactive. So what what has surprised you since you've taken over this role? I don't know if it's so much a surprise as much as it is a question of being impressed. And uh, I'm really impressed by the, the level of passion and professionalism. Um, I mean, the institution, and this is perhaps true more broadly throughout the Smithsonian, but certainly at Air and Space Museum, we have a rather tenured workforce. And that speaks to the fact that people that that join the Air and Space Museum do so out of fundamentally a passion, and they're able to live that passion and stay with us. And it's also very impressive to me how many of our employees actually started out in visitor services sort of very much in a... I don't want to say ground level, but at a, at a point of entry into the institution that has allowed them to evolve. So I've been very impressed at just how committed folks are and in a, in a very good way. Yeah. So, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Perhaps you could describe your career path. I, uh, after graduating from college, I decided I wanted to fly. Um, and one way to do that was to fly in the Navy. And uh, I had gotten my, received my pilot's license while attending school up at Dartmouth College and decided that that was something I wanted to pursue. A little bit of a non standard career path for 
my colleagues at the time, but uh, joined the Navy, went on to fly F-14s um, in the 80s. I was active duty from 80 to 87. It was a very formative uh, experience, a very positive one. I would say one of the things that I really took from that that has been particularly applicable to the work I'm doing today is the importance of teamwork and team cohesion. And uh, so that was a very positive experience of flying in the in the Navy and flying off of carriers. But then I decided with a young family that it was time to try something a little bit different, perhaps not with as much time away or travel. And so I got into airport management and uh, went on to become the airport manager at Reagan National and then subsequently at Dallas Airport. So over the course of 30 years career with the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority, I managed airports and uh, sort of decided that, that I had gotten to a point where I probably had done everything I could at that point. And um, then by fortuitous happenstance, a colleague of mine who had been actually looking at a job site uh, that announced the deputy position a year and a half ago, I had not, it had not even been in my sort of radar, if you will. And I applied and uh, was very fortunate to get selected. So I've sort of had this string of aviation, if you will, mm-hmm. both practicing it as, uh, as a naval aviator and then managing airports and now at the museum. So it's been a very, very lucky career path. So, you know, as a Navy pilot and a leader in the aviation business, uh, I want to get, talk about your leadership philosophy. Perhaps you could outline some of your key leadership principles. But more importantly, what makes an effective leader, Chris? Well, I think part of it speaks to credibility. Um, when you have asks and expectations of people in an organization as a leader, if you don't have the credibility behind you, and it's not just subject matter expertise, it's much more than that, I think that that's, that's key. You've got to have that, that credibility with the workforce in order to inspire and, and lead them to uh, higher acts of, of performance and excellence. And go back, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, my time in the Navy was very formative because it, again, demonstrated very clearly to me and then in my subsequent career path that objectives are rarely the result of a single individual, that it really – success is born from the actions of a, an effective team. And so much of my effort or commitment as a leader has been how do you assemble and, and guide and lead – a team to uh, perform again in ways that they might otherwise not. So it's a very it's it's a fundamental appreciation that that these are very very rarely individual efforts. It's not to say that individuals can't be inspiring, but at the end of the day, it's the collective efforts of a lot of people. You know, the Apollo program was four hundred thousand people, and Neil Armstrong would be the first to say, "Look, I'm I'm the, my my success is a result of so many others." So I would say team team building is is critical. The, you know, the other thing it, when I was at the airport, it became very apparent to me. Um, people might say, "Well, well, Chris, you know, you manage or run a good airport," and I would I would be very deliberate in correcting them and saying, "I don't run the airport, but in the in the case of Dulles, I know 540 people who do." And so I really saw myself more as an enabler. Am I providing the resources, the training, the motivation, the empowerment, the things that the team needs to be successful? Because at the end of the day, you know, I was called the airport manager, but I would the example I would give folks is I said, if if there's a power outage at the airport, I didn't fix it, but I knew the master electricians who could. And if I'd done my job correctly, they would be 
uh, trained, resourced, and staffed in a way that would allow them to solve that problem. How is the National Air and Space Museum being transformed? We will ask its deputy director, Chris Brown, when the conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. So, Chris, you know, you've pointed out that the National Air and Space Museum maintains the world's largest and most significant collection of aviation and space artifacts. I'm wondering if you could give us sort of an introduction into the strategic vision that frames the direction of the museum and perhaps identify some key priorities for the museum. I think sometimes people think of museums as being rather static places, you know, dusty, sort of dimly lit places where things are kind of collected. And certainly from my relatively brief experience, the opposite is the case. They're very dynamic. So, for instance, the collection is growing all the time, and particularly in the areas of aviation and space. So the collection that is very much on display now in the case of uh, the Mall Museum, um, when we renovate that building, half of the artifacts that are in the building now that will go out will not come back because we will bring it back with new uh, artifacts that have been collected and reached significance in the last 40 years, some that have been out on loan, some that are at the Varhazi Center. So the collection itself grows. And so... It's, there's a dynamic process. And then how do you tell those stories and the associated research in a way that is relevant? The way we may have told the story about the Enola Gay 30 years ago might be told in a different way today. Or take, for instance, the Apollo program. The uh, Apollo gallery in the museum today at the moment was built in, at a time and directed towards an audience that had lived Apollo. Apollo was, if it was a memory, it was a very, very fresh one. The museum opened in 76, um, the lunar, first lunar landing in, in less than 10 years. And so there was a freshness to it in, in that most of the people coming into the museum were of the Apollo age. Well, now when we redo that gallery in what's going to be called Destination Moon, our audience has changed. Most of the people coming into the museum today, the vast majority of them, and certainly some of the key audiences like middle schoolers, Apollo is is not even a distant memory. It's new. And so are we telling these stories in a way that is relevant 
And so the, the storytelling even changes. And it's not to be revisionist per se, yeah, but the sure. scholarship improves and increases over time. And so the collection evolves, the stories evolve, and our audiences are evolving. So when we built the museum and opened it in 76, the digital age yeah, really. was not upon us. And now as much of our goal is not just to rebuild the museum structurally and in a way that is, is impactful for our visitors that visit us in person, but how do we take the museum virtually? Yeah. How do we reach – Secretary Scorton with the Smithsonian has said we need to reach a billion people. Well, those billion people don't necessarily all speak English and they're certainly not all coming to visit the museum. So what do we need to do in terms of digitizing the collection and everything else that allows us to sort of take the storytelling and the, the, the museum per se beyond the walls? So the museum, uh, it's a very dynamic place, much more so than I think probably many people kind of assume. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's funny, you, you mentioned uh, in the previous segment uh, the renovation and the transformation that's going on. You know, given that it's four decades of, you know, long of its life and enduring the traffic that the, at least the mall institution has had to endure, uh, it's kind of no surprise to most that the museum is now in, in need of major renovations. You know, I'm trying to get into the history because we, we are talking about museums. So how did some decisions back in 76... The, sort of the value engineering contribute to this need? Sure. I mean, one one thing to remember is because of our incredible success, the place is probably worn out faster than we might have otherwise thought. I mean, we like to think of an analogy that if, if on, a, on a comparative basis, if you lived in a 2,500-square-foot home and entertained over 140 guests every night for 40 years, what would your home look like? And so the wear and tear of the place is just the, the result of, of tremendous success. So that's good, but it has created some, some challenges in terms of the infrastructure. With regard to decisions made at the time it was built in 76, you know, there were some value engineering decisions which in, in reflection are, are, are frankly regrettable such that the stone cladding on the outside of the building, instead of being uh, specced at three inches, is actually less than an inch and a half. And so while it was cost savings at the time, what was probably not contemplated was that this stone would actually, because of its relative thinness, would actually warp and crack. And Initially, the, the effort was to improve the utility infrastructure of the building, replace the HVAC and, and those the, the kind of behind-the-scenes things, but all of which are very important to the care of the collection, but also to the guest experience. And as we got into it, we discovered, well, we have to do a lot more than clean out the ducts and replace the HVAC because, in fact, the stone cladding right behind the stone itself is the plenum that feeds the air into the building itself. And so the inability to actually maintain temperature and humidity at an acceptable level, even within that plenum, as it gets circulated into the building, uh, we're not able to meet the standards of care, as I say, both for the collection but for our guests. So the, the HVAC issue suddenly became my gosh, we got to take all this stone cladding off. The skin of the building has to come off. And as soon as you do that, it's probably dramatic to say gutting the building, but we're exposing it in such a way that it requires us to move everything out of the way. So the entire collection in the galleries 
has to be disassembled and removed from the building so that the contractor can go in and expose the interior as will be needed to replace the stone and begin to rebuild the infrastructure inside of it. And in so doing, we'll be able to put in place more contemporary measures that, that we really want, such as security and blast resistance and ADA compliance and a lot of the things that you see in more modern buildings. This is an opportunity to put in the project, but it doesn't mean that the project scope uh, as we got into it ha- increased significantly. And you've chosen an interesting approach to the renovation. I think it's called the gradual uh, renovation approach. What are some of the benefits of going in that direction, and and how is the museum funding it? First, it's important to recognize that the museum is a national – you could say national asset. I would prefer to say it's a national treasure. It is the citizen's uh, museum. And the museum structure itself is funded – through um, taxpayer revenues. It's a, we receive an appropriation from the government to operate and maintain the museum and then significantly from benefactors. So there's this joint, uh, it, it wouldn't be appropriate to say public-private, but there's a great deal of private philanthropy that supports the museum. But fundamentally, the structure itself is a national structure, a national asset. So there's a responsibility in that regard. And as we got into this project and scoped it, it became it began to grow in its 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 impact. And as we put the project together, it was really important to us. Uh, we looked at, well, what if we close it down in its entirety? What would that mean? And on balance, one of the things we determined was that for so many of our guests and visitors, They have a a once-in-a-lifetime visit to the nation's capital. And we didn't want to close our doors to those folks. So our commitment is to keep half the museum open at all times. And in it, some of the more iconic uh, artifacts like the the Wright Flyer and the Spirit of St. Louis. So that we can, at least in the course of this seven-year project, ensure our, our visitors that there will be an experience for them. Granted, it won't be the experience that they will get at the end of this project, but that will be there. So you almost think of it as two separate projects, Mm -hmm. the east half of the building, the west half of the building. And the question was asked, well, why don't you just tear down the whole thing and start over? In fact, the secretary was asked at Congress, I mean, rather than seek $650 million in federal funding, why why don't we just rebuild the building? Well, it goes back to the assumptions, one of which I just mentioned, and that is remaining open for the public at, at some level, but also to actually find a home for all the artifacts, if they were all moved out at once, would be a, uh, a, a huge burden. I don't know how we'd, we'd have to do so much enabling work in construction that the cost of, of what that option was was, was going to well be more than two double the cost of the option that we're now taking. So even as as expensive as the project may be, on the one hand, um, the alternatives were considerably more. And I think uh, at the end of the day, yes, this is stretched out over a seven-year period, but it does mean that we will be able to uh, keep our doors open uh, to the public throughout. So, you know, as part of the renovation, and, and you've hinted at this before, um, the galleries will be updated with current generation interactive technology. Uh, would you tell us more about what the vision is here and how will the use of such technology change the way the museum delivers its message? 
As a visitor comes through our gallery, part of what we're trying to do is engage that person, whether it's a middle schooler or an elder. How do we engage them? And what some folks may think of as a uh, the, the, the typical engagement would be script on boards in front of an artifact. And um, if you go through museums, you it's very interesting to watch what people how engaged they actually become with that. And and we have opportunities now that we didn't have 40 years ago or even 10 years ago, really, which allow us to, to look at other means of engaging those people in the story that is, that is told about the artifact they may be seeing. So is it through a link to a phone? Is it to an actual mechanical kind of interactive? Um, what do those look like that can ensure that that story is really being told in a way that is, is receptive and, and impactful to, to the visitor. Now, there will be some people that will graze. They'll go through and they just want to look. There will be some people that will be very targeted and want to read everything because that is, you know, um, represents the best of scholarly research that the country can offer. Um, but then there are others that want a more interactive piece to it. And we have tools and opportunities now that that never existed. And so uh, we have, as part of our effort to redesign these galleries, uh, a major component will be what are the interactives that go into them. And it's important to know that everything has a budget. And um, interactives can be very expensive and they can become dated rather quickly. So it's very, one of the things we want to be is agile and, and do things in a way that would allow us to to sort of retrofit or swap out and not be careful that we don't invest too much in what could become an aging piece of infrastructure in a, in a matter of several years. Um, I, I should mention that the galleries themselves, the build out of the galleries uh, um, is being done entirely through private philanthropy. Wow. So again, the, the, the federal commitment is to do the building. But they will not do the galleries. Um, that is on um, the, the generosity of the American people and others, corporate and individuals that seek to join us in this, this effort. And that's a $250 million campaign. We've got 23 galleries plus all the connecting common spaces to um, reimagine, if you will, using current technologies, interactives, um, graphics, and other design elements that uh, – will really make for a very impactful kind of wow experience that we expect. But we could not do it if not for the generosity of our benefactors. Yeah, and, you know, switching gears a little bit to, for, away from the uh, renovation and transformation, you mentioned the tagline of uh, one museum, two locations. And, uh, you know, I'd like to, for you to tell us about the two buildings that make up the museum. What, 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 how are they different? How are they similar how do they complement the mission of the museum, and why was the locations different? The two museums you, of course, refer to are the Museum on the Mall and then, of course, the Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center at Dallas. And the, that museum is the only museum in the Smithsonian inventory, if you will, that's been financed entirely through oh, really? private philanthropy okay. uh, and most significantly by Stephen F. Udvarhazy and his family. And they are different, and sometimes people lose sight of that. Um, different in a lot of ways. Starting with our, our 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 visitors, very many of our visitors here in the in the city 
coming to the museum on the mall will be people that are moving uh, through D.C. and the various locations and museums across the mall. And the dwell time may be about an hour and a half. They come through. We're on the mall. They want to see us. But they might might just as well uh, have come from natural history, American history. The Udvarhazy Center Dulles is much more of a destination. Yeah. You drive to it currently. Uh, metro may help, but there there is bus service. But by and large, people drive. And the dwell time there is significantly longer, a bit more of a destination. We have a higher concentration of local visitors to Udvarhazy than what we have on the mall. But we're hoping that that could, can change because we think that each museum location, uh, it has its own unique offering. There are artifacts in the collection at Udvarhazy that are physically impossible to bring down to the mall. Spaceship dus- uh, space shuttle discovery, uh, the Enola Gay, the SR-71, the Concorde. Some of our artifacts are really large and would never be able to be displayed in the confines of the building we have here on the mall. And it's interesting because yet we have a lot of artifacts and space artifacts in our galleries and will continue to going forward here at the Mall Museum. And how do we connect those when, in fact, how do we tell the space shuttle story, for instance, or ISS, the International Space Station story, in a gallery at the Museum on the Mall when it relates most directly to some of the artifacts at at Udvarhazy, like the space shuttle discovery? So how do we connect the two? will be a continued objective of ours. But when you go to the Udvarhazy Center, you'll find, and and certainly uh, many of your listeners that have done this, um, we don't have galleries with extensive storytelling per se. It was initially described as America's hangar, and it was a place to store aircraft and yet do so in a way that was publicly accessible. But we've actually done much more than that. I mean, we're not just sort of storage hangar. I mean, these aircraft that are on display, the vast, vast majority of them have already gone through extensive care and renovation and conservation. We also have a very elaborate uh, renovation and conservation facility at the Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center that we don't have here in the Mall Museum. It's absolutely world-class, the work that's being done by our conservators and exhibit designers and and folks doing restoration. But uh, they are different facilities. It's the same collection, but there's elements of the collection we can't bring here. And yet how we tell that story, uh, we do it in a different way. So we'll have simple descriptions, for instance, at the Enola Gay or the Concorde or the Discovery. We'll have a description, but not necessarily the extensive story mm-hmm. and con- contextual story that you get in a full gallery. What is being done to enhance the visitor's experience at the museum? We will ask Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation 
to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center Special Report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. So, Chris, last uh, segment, we talked a lot about the renovation and some of the strategy behind the museum, but I'd like to get into the operations of the museum a little bit now. And, and would you tell us more about how the museum goes about procuring and curating artifacts and collections that comprise your exhibits, and how how do you ensure stewardship and access to the museum's premier collections? The uh, process by which artifacts are accessioned into the museum is a rather rigorous one. Quite frankly, there's lots of stuff out there and, and owners of that that have a sense that it's worthy of being introduced into the national collection and that it's important with our curators in particular to be able to assess the prominence or provenance of, if you will, of, of a particular artifact and, and why it needs to be in the national collection or why it shouldn't be. For instance, there are some aircraft, notable aircraft, that are not in the National Collection. One would suggest a B-52 bomber. It's been a notable impact. We don't have any plans for one, and part of that is because there are other museums like the museum in, in Dayton, the Air Force Museum, that has one. And so part of our decision in terms of what needs to be or should be in the National Collection is whether that particular aircraft or spacecraft or item has been well represented in, in other museums or Smithsonian affiliates, for instance. Because it, we are limited in terms of our space, and so because it is the National Collection, we are able to be um, selective. And so really it starts with that accession process. And so largely our curators, and, and certainly the director has influence on this, determines what is out there that should be in the National Collection? Now, unlike some museums, we don't have an endowment that allows us to purchase artifacts. So we really rely on the generosity of those artifacts uh, if they're held in private hands as being introduced to the collection. On the other hand, all that the space items and spacesuits, things that are coming from NASA, this is probably the wrong term, but I would suggest that the Air and Space Museum has rights of first refusal. Sure. And so uh, we're able to collect those artifacts that, that were produced by the government or serve a government purpose. So we have this virtually every spacesuit is in the national collection. Many of them are on loan. We have a very robust loan program. So it starts with the accession of the object and the story behind it. It's not if – it, if it's a P-51 Mustang, it has to have notable – aspect to it in terms of record setting or wartime record or the person of particular prominence that actually perhaps flew that aircraft. So we have a Cessna 180, which is rather ubiquitous, but the Cessna 180 we have that is most impactful. And the reason it's in the collection is because uh, Jerry Mock uh, flew it around the world, the first woman to do so. Mm -hmm. So it, it was through her actions that this aircraft came to life and, and warranted being in the national collection. And we'll actually 
be brought from Udvarhazi to the mall building as part of a new gallery that we're designing called We All Fly. So there's the accession process and then the research and curatorial effort behind that because, as, again, artifacts stand silent without the stories behind them and, and we really rely on the scholars and the researchers and curators to, to do that in a way that is authentic and accurate. And then very often these artifacts, in most cases, will need some level of care and conservation. And so there's a very large group within the museum of professionals that there's varying levels or approaches to conservation. For instance, the space shuttle discovery, we sometimes our guests will say, well, it looks dirty. Why didn't you clean it up? Well, part of the, the intent there is to show the shuttle as it appeared on its final flight into the U.S. And so there was no effort in that case to clean it. In this case, we would stabilize it. And the intent being that we would preserve it in situ in its in its current state in perpetuity. And that can be extremely complex. Uh, our conservation team has been embarked on a very elaborate effort to design the means by which Neil Armstrong's spacesuit can be displayed. Uh, it'll be rolled out later this year in a way that will keep it in place for generations to come. Many of our artifacts are naturally eroding. So the the rubber seals on space uh, suits and so forth are all naturally degrading. And so the team is very engaged and busy with trying to figure out how to if it, at least slow down, if not arrest that process through cutting-edge means and methods. Uh, it's, it's its own fascinating story. So once you get the artifact, you got to stabilize, protect it. you got to tell the story behind it. And in, in cases, you know, depending on what we're able to do, we put that artifact on display. But much of the collection, of course, like most museums, is beyond the public view. Mm-hmm. And then as that artifact is now sort of in place uh, on display at one of our locations, then... Uh, our visitor services, our docents help guide the public through the facility in a way that really makes that connection and arguably that is the most important piece. You know, that none of this works unless the public is accessing it either in person or online. The, the, the renovation will have an operational impact. In fact, as I understand it, a number of well-known exhibitions will be closing. What happens to those exhibitions? We, some of our arguably very, very popular exhibitions, um, let's take, for instance, one close to me with my naval background, the Sea Air Gallery. Mm-hmm. That will be closing, and all those artifacts will be removed from the building, disassembled, and, and obviously you have to take the wings off these aircraft and so forth, and transported to the Udvarhazi Center and undergo, uh, in many cases, restoration, particularly in cases where some of these artifacts haven't been touched in 40 years and they're new conservation methods. So in time, they'll, be, they'll go through our uh, restoration and conservation facility. They may be put back on display at Udvarhazi Center. Some of them will come back here into galleries. But we will not be replicating, for instance, that Sea Air Gallery in the new build-out identical to the way it is. And I know that that may come as a disappointment to some of our folks, visitors that really enjoy that gallery, as do I. But this is an opportunity. It's not that we're not going to tell these stories, but 
I think given the opportunity we have, we're going to tell them in, in a more impactful way. So we're going to have a suite of galleries that talk about World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War using some of the most impactful artifacts from that era. And so, and I mentioned earlier our Apollo gallery. Um, many of the artifacts in the current Apollo gallery will come back in the destination moon. But I think to a visitor, um, it will be absolutely stunning and how um, it will really have a wow factor in ways that I think meet all the expectations that people could possibly have. So while the... Uh renovation of one wing is happening and activity and visitors are coming in in the other wing. I'm trying to figure out how do you ensure the safety and integrity of various artifacts? It's it's the artifacts, but it's also the public Um, because it will be a construction site, but working with the construction team, uh, the Clark Smoot Consiglia, who's got the, the contract for this under leadership and guidance from our Smithsonian facilities and some of our own folks, they have a track record working with the Smithsonian. Uh, they built, uh, for instance, the uh, NAMAC. So there's a lot of experience in the team that we believe can be brought to bear to ensure that the project is executed in a way that meets all the safety and uh, protocols that you would expect. So we're going to have to segregate the construction in a way that does not present any risk to the public. Um, as for the artifacts themselves, where the construction's occurring, those artifacts will have been removed and are, will be under care at the Udvarhazi facility or in about a dozen cases where we have extremely large artifacts like the 747 nose or the Skylab or the uh, some of the, the rockets. Some of these will have to be protected in place where they will be literally encased in its own structure, with its own uh, climate control and so forth. It won't be publicly accessible at that point. Even though there will be construction occurring around it, it will be in a structurally sound space that allows it to, uh, you know, ensures its its well-being for the duration of the construction. Yeah, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about, you know, research excellence, subject matter expertise excellence at the museum. What is being done to identify and recruit the next generation of scholars at the museum? I think it starts with uh, creating that passion. Mm -hmm. And so fundamental to our mission is, as I mentioned, commemorate, educate, Mm -hmm. but to also inspire. And many of our folks, I think I mentioned earlier, started out – if they didn't start out uh, as an intern or a fellow – or even in visitor services, um, they visited the museum and were inspired in a way, as we would hope is occurring today and into the future, um, people to go into the field. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a STEM-specific field. It could just as easily be a scholarly field. But to recognize that what we're about, the aviation and space story, as I say, while it's not uniquely American, Aviation and space flight has uniquely defined the American experience, unlike anything I can think of. I mean, 100, 
200 years from now, people will look back on this period of time as being particularly impactful in terms of the, the what what aviation and space, aerospace have done to us culturally and as, as a country. So I think as long as we can continue to inspire, tell that story and inspire people to include future scholars, then folks will will want to be part of this story. You know, it's probably a question best asked of, of our chief curator, Peter Jacob, Dr. Peter Jacob, or some of our other scholars in terms of, you know, what inspired them to uh, get into this uh, area of, of interest. But um, certainly I believe, perhaps optimistically, that that level of scholarly uh, engagement and research will continue. We have a, a, a doctor on staff who is leading the team to select the next Martian uh, rover landing in 2020. And, you know, he toils away day after day and unbeknownst to many of our visitors. And yet here we have uh, Dr. John Grant um, at the cutting edge of determining where we want the next lunar rover to land. I mean, what is the most important spot? So that level of, of scholarly engagement and research uh, will continue to be a central commitment of the uh, of the museum going forward, and certainly under the leadership of Dr. Stofa and given her, her background as well. How does the National Air and Space Museum sustain the wow factor? We will ask its deputy director, Chris Brown, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. So, Chris, how does the museum evaluate program effectiveness, and how does it work? How does the process work? Frankly, I think that that's a a challenge for us, and my guess is for, for many of our colleagues in the industry, because unless you create that sort of feedback loop with your visitors, your guests, in person or online or however they're they're reaching you. Absent that feedback loop, you you don't necessarily have much more than your own sort of an- anecdotal impression. And so we recognize that and we're looking at ways and means to become more connected to our audiences. Uh, We get a lot of people coming through our front doors, but how well do we really know them and how well do we know what it is that is of most interest to them? And then at the conclusion of their visit, how do we know whether we've been successful? So this is a key objective for us. It's – I I would readily admit that it's not something that we've perhaps done as successfully as we would want. But I know that it's it's an objective of, of Dr. Stofans. Again, I think we have tools available to us today that allow us to engage sort of after the visit, particularly if it's a, a digital experience. How can we engage with our visitors to say, okay, well, what resonated? What was the success? 
I mean, we can otherwise say, well, we had 8 million visitors. That's a great measure of success. And it is, for sure. I mean, people wouldn't come if it, if it didn't resonate. But I think we'd like a deeper understanding to make sure that we're we're delivering and meeting uh, the, the goals and expectations of, of our visitors, however they they come to us. And it kind of sustains the wow factor. I, I was when I was prepping for our interview. I think you were quoted as saying that when you went to the uh, uh, the uh, Air and Space Museum when it first opened, it was a wow factor to it. Right. So as you turn to the future, how how are you folks working to sustain that wow factor for the next generation? One, one part I would suggest is get to folks early. Yeah. Preempt others. You know, get the one of our goals, uh, and we're close to achieving it through some the generosity of some uh, wonderful uh, of board directors and others is to get every sixth grader in the district schools to come through our doors each year. So. In the life of a of a, a school child in the district, um, he or she will have come to the Air and Space Museum at a critical point in their learning. So we've uh, have on our staff a, a gentleman, uh, Ryan Sim, who him, he, himself was a, a sixth grade school teacher in the district. We were lucky to be able to hire him away and. He is very connected, for instance, to the core curriculum of D.C. and to make sure that when they come to us that we're part of that. So I think it's, it's, getting, it's getting to our audiences early and as often as possible. And um, th- there's no substitute for the wow factor of um, visually and, and just sort of uh, as you walk through the door, what is it you see? What is it you feel on it? And, and what, what resonates? And as you referenced, when I came through, I had a particular uh, – I came through in 77, a year after it had opened. And I I don't know why, but the DC-3 was a, a, an impactful aircraft to me at the time. It still is. But then to see one literally hanging from the ceiling to me was just – jaw-dropping. And then to look around, the lunar lander and everything, it was just, I mean, that is one of the things we have the good fortune at the Air and Space Museum is that we are able to share truly the most iconic artifacts uh, of our time. And part of that, though, is not to sort of rest on our laurels, but to, I talked earlier about accessioning into the museum uh, and growing the collection. But even now, um, as Dr. Stofan has challenged us, is how do we do a better job telling contemporary stories? Even if something in that storyline is not necessarily going to be part of the national collection at some point, how do we contribute to the conversation occurring today about what's happening right now? So when the Falcon Heavy uh, is launched and then you see those boosters sort of stick the landing back uh, I mean, I think most of us who saw that were remarkable, found it remarkable. How do we tell that story in a contemporary way and not necessarily relying on galleries uh, celebrating or commemorating the past? And so we will have a gallery 
that will will do just that. Um, another gallery that we're looking at is one innovation gallery. How do we tell stories that are evolving as we as very much before us? So I think part of the wow factor is is what we've historically been able to show. I think some of that is timeless. Uh, it's getting to the right audiences early and often, and then it's uh, and, and relating to them. Uh, one of the things that we want to make sure is that everybody coming through our door sees themselves in the museum and in the collection and in the stories. So whether you're a young girl uh, uh, visiting from Nigeria or whoever you may be, it's important that we create that relationship and be able to say, yes, uh, what we have to offer relates to your life experience and what you can be. And so uh, I think... uh, some of the things we're doing now unquestionably will maintain that wow factor, but even in ways that uh, are, are changing and evolving. So, uh, you know, Chris, given your experience, whether it be it as a Navy uh, aviator or um, a pilot or, uh, you know, your career with uh, Reagan National and Dulles running them uh, and now, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I think the one thing in, that defines public service is that uh, public servants are just that. They're serving the public's interests and needs, and it's a question of putting others above self. Um, you know, our, our lives are short in the one hand, and we want to make sure that we're putting our time to good use. And I think there's no greater value than to be able to put it in the service of others, whether it's in military service, whether it's in a public institution like the Air and Space Museum. Um, You know, there are many things that uh, are sort of the hierarchy of needs. And I would suggest that, that the greatest need is to feel the fulfillment you get from serving others. And um, there's always a lot of sacrifice that goes along with that. For many people in public service, um, it could be a financial sacrifice. They could be making perhaps more money in, in other ways. It's time away from family and the military in particular or perhaps even personal risk of a, of a police officer or firefighter. I mean what it is that motivates people uh, to do these things, I would suggest, is this notion that at the end of the day, we are our brother's keeper and sister's keeper, and there's value in being able to say that I served you above myself. Great way to end. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a privilege and pleasure. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Chris Brown, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business, so join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. 
and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network.